Hello and welcome to the Celtic History Podcast with me, Liam Kelly. Today's episode covers another three chapters of Take Me To Your Paradise, a history of Celtic-related incidents and events. The first chapter that I'm going to cover is chapter 8 of the book, and it's called The Final Protest. The Scottish Cup campaign had already entailed a multitude of mayhem, and the Glasgow Cup final of 1889 was no different. In the shadow of Hampden, at Caskin Park, Celtic were up against national, let alone city giants, Queen's Park, on the 14th of December. The game was played at a vigorous pace, with Peter Dowds having an early goal disallowed. Many players were warned for serious roughness, and both teams scored legitimate goals inside the first half hour. Celtic had certainly been the better side throughout the first half. However, the match exploded into controversy when, after some desultory play, Queen's Park went 2-1 ahead through a header by Seller. Citing a push on the goalkeeper, the enraged Celtic players surrounded the referee to plead their case that the goal be chalked off. One Celtic player left the field in disbelief, whilst others threatened to join him. Nevertheless, the referee stood firmly by his decision to award the goal. Play continued in similarly frantic fashion, and Celtic got their just rewards with an equaliser in the 44th minute. Despite dominating the second half, the Hoops conceded again, thanks to a 30-yard screamer from Alan Stewart. This time, it was a deficit that the boys failed to overcome. Celtic immediately lodged a protest over the decisive second Queen's Park goal. Therefore, the Glasgow Association decided to present the cup to Queen's Park on a provisional basis, before reviewing the appeal. The cup presentation was made in Royal Restaurant, West Nile Street, during the evening. No Celtic players turned up, blaming their absence upon policy, but a few members of the club's committee appeared throughout the course of the evening. Mr A. Kirkwood, president of the Glasgow Association, handed over the cup to the custody of Mr D. C. Brown, president of Queen's Park, and the Queen's Park players were represented by being given their victory badges. The much-awaited protest of Celtic was heard on the 18th of December 1889 in a meeting room on Waterloo Street, Glasgow. Mr A. Kirkwood headed the meeting. After listening to what the many truculent Celtic members had to say, the protest was dismissed and the cup remained in the possession of the spiders. The minutes of the meeting closed with the following statement. As a result of the decision in the protest by the Celtic against Queen's Park, it is stated that the Celtic will withdraw from the Glasgow Football Association. The second chapter that I'm going to be covering today is called the Johnston Vigilante Committee. At the time of writing, top-flight English clubs often attempt to steal away Celtic's top assets by making lucrative transfer offers. But it hasn't always been that way. In the days before professionalism was introduced to Scottish football, their already professional English counterparts used to send agents up to Glasgow on a kidnapping quest. A player would receive a knock at the door and have a professional contract shown to them by an agent. The player would then either decide to travel down south to the club in question, 
or potentially be jostled into a car and taken to pastures new in England ahead of further persuasive talks. Either way, Celtic were never consulted or offered compensation. The Celtic support in Johnston, Renfrewshire, decided to act against the theft of top players. In early 1891, they formed the Johnston Vigilante Committee, a unit of passionate fans who would defend the club from the scourge of English agents. Johnston was an area with a strong Celtic connection. Three people associated with the town represented the club in its first year of existence. Willie Dunning, a goalkeeper signed from Johnston Juniors, Patrick Gallagher, an early Celtic hero who was born in the town and signed from Hibernian, Peter Dowds, a Johnston-born utility man, who was described by Willie Maley at the outbreak of World War II as the greatest all-round player the club has ever seen. Shortly after the voided Scottish Cup final in March 1892, the game which Celtic won 1-0 was made void as a result of crowd encroachment among the 40,000 spectators, Johnson Celts alerted the local vigilante committee to the fact that Peter Dowds had been spotted getting into a car with officials from Everton. The committee sprang into action and chased the vehicle before running it off the road and into a hedge. Two men emerged and pretended to have pistols in their possession. They retained Dowds and ordered the Evertonians away. The rescue mission was successful, but a month after Celtic's 5-1 victory over Queen's Park in the Scottish Cup final replay, Dowds had left to sign for Aston Villa. He returned via Stoke City in 1894. And the final chapter covered in today's episode is called Singing in the Face of Landlords. The year of 1892 saw some of the earliest controversial events in Celtic Football Club's history. For four years previous, Celtic Park had been situated just 500 metres from its current site, at the northeastern juncture between Springfield Road and London Road. That initial stadium had been constructed in less than six months by Pat Gaffney and a large volunteer workforce. However, the land on which the impressive original Celtic Park stood was that of private property owned by Alexander Waddle. The right to continue using the 110-yard by 66-yard pitch, complete with a pavilion, a referee's room, an office, changing facilities, and capacity for 1,000 spectators, was costing Celtic Football Club £50 per annum. Despite the club's charitable endeavour, Alexander Waddle began to take note of the rising Celtic fortune and, rather inequitiously, raised his rental demands by some 800% from £50 to £450 per annum. Such demands were not feasible for a growing club like Celtic, and thus the club explored alternative options. The Celtic committee viewed sites in Springburn and Postle Park before taking advantage of a disused brickyard adjacent to Janefield Street Cemetery. Productive talks were held with the brickyard landowner, an unlikely saviour named James Hosier, or Lord Newlands, as he later became titled. Hosier had been an active unionist politician 
who had worked as a foreign secretary and private secretary for the Prime Minister. He was an enthusiastic establishment figure who was president of the Lanarkshire Territorial Forces Association and even went on to become the Grand Master Mason of Scotland in 1899 until 1903. A deal for a 10-year lease had initially been struck, but James Hosier was later persuaded to sell the land to Celtic permanently. A lasting reminder of Hosier's involvement in the transaction can be found in the shadow of Celtic Park, off London Road, where Maudsley Street, brackets, named after his former home, Maudsley Castle, exists. Once the club confirmed their decision to relocate, a large band of volunteers were once more required to construct the new stadium. 100,000 cartloads of earth were used to plug a 40-foot crater half filled with water. Two tracks were installed, the outer to be used for cycling events and the inner to be used for running. Both were among the best of their kind in the world. A 15-tiered stand spanned the touchline and a two-storey pavilion was added. The new Celtic Park was officially opened on Saturday the 13th of August 1892 with the club's third of what would prove to be annual sports days. Newspaper reports of the time described the weather that day to be of the most disagreeable kind. Indeed, a thunderstorm hovered above the new ground at 3pm. However, the wet conditions were not enough to stop star attraction Bradley of Huddersfield winning the 150 and 100 metre sprint races. Edinburgh distance runners Human Hunter claimed the top two spots in the mile race, whilst the day saw further distance runs and cycling jousts won by Englishmen. A quote from the 1932-33 Celtic handbook reflected on the day. The old trouble landlord brought about a change of field, and it was in keeping with it too that a seeming impossible site was converted into a splendid enclosure. A case of leaving the graveyard to enter the paradise. A happy title did that pressman strike. The lessons learnt and the experience gained on the old monument to the loyalty and fidelity of the pioneers of the club, did they not give their labour to construct it, were not lost. The splendid pedestrian and cycling tracks which surround the playing area, on which champions the world over showed their paces, added another title, the home of sport. It was an auspicious occasion and great day when the late Fenian, Michael Davitt, laid a fresh centre sod of turf from Donegal with a handsome silver spade presented to him by the club. As heard in the extract from the handbook, Celtic invited Michael Davitt to perform the penultimate action of the day when he laid the first sod of shamrock smothered turf imported from the town of Maladuck in Donegal. Michael Davitt was the founder of the Irish National Land League and had served 15 years in a Dartmoor prison for Fenian agitation. He was appointed Celtic patron at the club's AGM in 1889 and was a natural choice to perform such a symbolic act in terms of extenuating the Irish identity of the club. Davitt was accompanied at the new Celtic Park by MP Timothy Daniel Sullivan who concluded the occasion when he turned to the crowd and sang the unofficial Irish national anthem at the time, God Save Ireland. 
MP Sullivan had penned the song himself in tribute to the three Manchester martyrs who were executed after a sham trial on November the 23rd, 1867. The grand opening was epitomised by a poetic East End headmaster in the following way. On alien soil like yourself I am here, I'll take root and flourish, of that never fear, and though I'll be cross-sore and oft by the foes, you'll find me as hardy as thistle or rose. If metal is needed on your own pitch you'll have it, let your honour play me and my friend Michael Davitt. Sadly the turf was stolen hours after it was ceremoniously laid, and the culprit was never found. In the text copy in front of me, I've got a picture of the Celtic Grave Society plaque, which marks the original site of the uh, of, of the first Celtic Park Stadium. Um, and you can find that behind the Lisbon Lions stand, um, alongside the Janefield Street Cemetery wall. Um, and that gives you a bit of detail about what happened at the original ground, um, how the how the original grounds um, came to be and then how it kind of finished and tells you a little bit about some of the matches that we had held during that time. So that's the end of the third chapter that we covered today. Um, so that's chapters 8, 9 and 10. Next time I'll be back with a whole story about the floodlight failure, which is a story about Celtic attempting to be pioneers in British football of floodlighting um, and it was ultimately unsuccessful and then I'll go on from there to cover a story called the Irish Race Convention which is a, a big story about Celtic sending an official delegation uh, to the Irish Race Convention in 1896 which was a, an event that was set up um, to try and plot a route towards Irish home rule. So thank you for listening, I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll be back again soon with those further chapters.